Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Corey Rosen. He is the founder and senior staff member at the National Center for Employee Ownership, which is a nonprofit group that is the primary source of information about employee ownership of companies. He's just come out with a new book called Ownership, Reinventing Companies, Capitalism, and Who Owns What. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Corey. Thank you, Jordan. It's a pleasure to be here. Just give us a little bit of your background leading into uh, writing of this book. Sure. So I started off as an academic and then went to work on Capitol Hill for five years, got involved in legislation around employee ownership, thought it was a fascinating idea that not very many people knew much about, and so decided to start the National Center for Employee Ownership as an organization that would provide information on that. That was in 1980. Today, we're a staff of 19, and we're the leading source of information on this topic of employee ownership. And when John Case and I decided to write to start this book a couple of years ago, we were thinking about the problem that here's an idea, employee ownership, that the research now over the decades has demonstrated helps companies perform better provides employees with about three times the retirement assets that they would have in other companies that lay people off at one-third to one-fifth the rate, have far higher retention rates for employees in other companies. So in a time when we have all this discussion about how to fix capitalism, whether you're Republicans or Democrats, People think something's not quite right with capitalism, or maybe a lot's not right right now. Why aren't we talking more about an idea that has such demonstrated capability to address so many issues at once? Fewer layoffs, better wealth building, higher wages, and companies performing better, and Republicans and Democrats both like it. So how many ideas are like this, and yet... It's not something people talk about very much. Yeah. So let's kind of look at the situation and where we are today. We've had the pandemic, and it's kind of disrupted the workplace in a major way. It created what people call the great resignation, where people didn't want to go back to the office. Um, And we had kind of this hybrid model. Uh, What did that do to employee loyalty uh, to the existing structure? The impact's quite significant. Before the pandemic, the research indicated that the turnover rates in employee ownership companies was less than half the turnover rates in comparable companies. We did a study this year that looked at the food industry. Of course, the food industry has been particularly hard hit by this problem. And we found that the voluntary turnover rate in the food industry for employee-owned companies was 70% less than the voluntary turnover rate in comparable food industry companies. They also lay people off at 40% lower rates than comparable companies. So when you're an employee owner, you have an incentive just because of the way these plans work 
you have an incentive to stick around because the longer you stick around, the more you're going to get. And these companies also tend to be very employee-centric. They realize that their most important asset really is their employees, and they treat them that way. And it becomes a win-win situation. But if you treat your employees well, they treat their customers well. If you treat your customers well, the company will make more money, and you can afford to treat your employees well, so they'll treat their customers well, and so on. Let's explicitly talk about what a so-called ESOP is, Employee Stock Ownership Plan. Uh, This was put into legislation a while ago, so just explain the structure of an ESOP and how it all works. Sure. So these plans were created legally in 1974. They'd existed prior to that, but their first statutory approval was in 1974, and there have been about 17 laws since then to provide additional tax incentives for it. So the way to think about an ESOP is that it's a benefit plan that the company sets up for the employees and pays for. The employees don't pay for it. The company pays for it out of the future tax-deductible profits that, of course, the employees help earn. So a typical scenario is that you've got a closely held company with one or more owners who's thinking, you know, now would be a good time for me to start thinking about selling the company, or at least selling part of it. And I have some choices. I could sell to private equity. I could sell to a competitor. Or sometimes I have a profitable company, but nobody wants to buy it anyway. If I sell to a private equity firm, I've heard a lot of stories about private equity firms coming in and laying people off because they want to maximize profit and flip the company in a few years. And the data bear that out. I could sell to a competitor. They might do the same thing to capture some synergies because maybe they don't need our accounting department, for instance. Maybe they'll move us to another place. Maybe they won't honor the values that we've worked hard to create. So I'm risking my legacy in selling to either of those. Well, what about selling to the employees? Well, it seems like that's a hard thing to do because where are the employees going to get the money? Well, the ESOP solves that problem. What it says is, you can do a couple different things. One is you can contribute, the company can contribute cash to this employee stock ownership plan. That cash is tax deductible, so it's a stock redemption. The company takes the cash and buys your shares. So now it'll buy the shares gradually over time. Alternatively, and this is what happens in most ESOPs, that the company borrows money, it borrows from a bank, It can take a note from a seller or a combination, and it takes that borrowed money and it uses it to buy shares from the seller, and often it buys the whole company. Now these shares go into this employee benefit plan, and they get allocated to all of the employees who work there, and generally they're allocated on their relative pay. Over time, the employees vest in the value of those contributions that have been made. And when they leave, the company buys the shares back from them. And all these transactions are done at an appraised fair market value. So this means that the seller 
can use future pre-tax profits to buy himself or herself out. Normally, when you do a stock redemption, it's not a tax deduction. So that's a big deal. Secondly, the seller can take the gains, invest them in stocks and bonds of U.S. companies, and not pay any tax until those replacement investments are sold. And you can't do that any other way. And finally, if the company is or becomes an S-corporation, the profits attributable to the ESOP aren't taxable. So most ESOPs these days are 100% owned by the ESOP. ESOP companies are 100% owned by the ESOP, which means they don't pay any taxes at all. And that's not a loophole. That's a law that the Republicans and Democrats both voted for. And in fact, nobody's ever opposed any of these tax benefits for ESOPs. And that was put in there to incentivize ESOPs. That's why that tax benefit is in there, correct? That's right. All of these different tax benefits, the deductibility of the cost of doing it, the capital gains tax deferral, and the non-taxability of earnings are things that Republicans and Democrats said, this is a great idea because it's a way of pre-distributing wealth. There's a lot of conversation about redistributing wealth. ESOPs are pre-distributing wealth. They're saying, let's look at the wealth that's going to be created in the future and who owns that. And we also, you know, we have a lot of conversation about income insecurity and income inequality. And those are real issues. But we need to have more conversation about wealth insecurity because so many people today are in a position where, you know, half the population can't put its hands on $1,000 in an emergency. Half the private sector workforce is in no retirement plan at all. Yeah. It's the median account balance for a private sector employee for retirement is zero. Yes, that's not very good. How how are the shares in an ESOP valued? Say somebody wants to leave the company and cash out in effect. Is that done right. on an annual basis, or how do they value the shares? So the valuation, whether it's for the transaction to buy the shares from the seller in the first place or for ongoing repurchases of shares when employees leave, is done by an independent outside appraisal firm. And what they're asking is, what would a hypothetical financial buyer pay for this company? So what they're trying to find out is, say an investor wanted to buy the company, why would they buy it? Well, they buy it because they want the assets, obviously, but mostly because they want access to the future earnings. So what rate of return would they want on an investment with that level of risk? So maybe the company is making a million dollars a year. Maybe they want 20% return. They'll pay $5 million. So that's very generally the model that's used. of cash flow is what you're saying, kind of similar to a PE ratio. And would it vary by the industry? I mean, yeah. some faster-growing industries are going to get a higher valuation than lower-growth industries? Yes, although within industry, there's going to be a lot of variation. So the critical factor is how quickly are your expected future free cash flows growing? Yes. And, and do employees get to see that every year? They know how much their shares are worth? 
they don't get to read the they don't get the 95 page valuation report every year but they do get a statement every year saying this is what your shares are worth and yes. almost all ESOP companies voluntarily go well beyond that and they share a lot of information about the company with the employees they share basic income statement and balance sheet information they share all kinds of metrics about how the company is doing because what they find is when they do this the employees are more engaged and motivated and the company performs better they don't yes. have to do any of that but they find it's good business practice very good we're going to take a break uh, this is jordan goodman of the money answer show my guest this hour is corey rosen He's the founder and senior staff member at the National Center for Employee Ownership, NCEO. His new book is called Ownership, Reinventing Companies, Capitalism, and Who Owns What? And you can find out more at their website, which is nceo.org. We'll be back after this. Nobody likes the guy who says, I told you so. The guy in 1991 who said to you, invest in the internet, it's gonna be huge. Or the guy in 1997 who said, come on, this is going to be big. They call it social media. And the guy in 2009 who said, I'm telling you, man, crypto is real. Now, I'm not going to be that guy who says, I told you so. But I am telling you that there is a 21-year-old international company where you can become a global project partner, earning a passive income doing exactly what you're doing at this moment. No selling, no recruiting clients, no administering a business after hours. Visit www.mypassiveincome.life now. That's mypassiveincome.life. Don't let history repeat itself on this one. Earn a passive income. Now listen again. That's mypassiveincome.life. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Corey Rosen. He is the founder and senior staff member at the National Center for Employee Ownership, NCEO, author of a new book called Ownership, Reinventing Companies, Capitalism, and Who Owns What? And you can find out more at his website, nceo.org. Welcome back to the show, Corey. Thank you, Jordan. Just give us a rough idea of how many ESOPs there are in the United States, and is this around internationally? There's about 6,500 ESOPs in the U.S. They employ about 14 million people. They're in both public and private companies. Public companies use them somewhat, quite differently, really, than uh, than 
private companies that in public companies, ESOPs own typically maybe 5% of the company and private companies usually end up owning the whole company. And if you go to the web, you can see a list. If you Google employee ownership 100, you'll see the largest 100 employee-owned companies. The largest by far is uh, is public supermarkets, which has been majority employee-owned since the 30s. But there are a lot of really large companies. Seven of the largest, 15, seven of the 15 largest engineering companies, for instance, are 100% owned by their employees. And how about the round outside world? the U.S.? It's, yes. The U.K. has a very similar system, and employee ownership is growing very quickly there now. They started in 2014, modeled significantly after U.S. law, and Canada. Very, there's a very good chance Canada will enact something like U.S. and U.K. law next year. But otherwise, nobody has anything quite like an ESOP. But why do you think it has not spread around the world more since it's been around for 50 years and been so successful here? I think it's the same, some of the same issues that mean that it doesn't get presidential candidates talking about it and pundits talking about it, that despite the fact that it obviously works, it solves real problems, intuitively, when people think about it, they think, oh, employee ownership, the employee's buying stock. Isn't that, that's kind of risky, and they don't have the money, and it's, it's kind of impractical. I've been to a lot of countries and talked to a lot of political leaders, and they have a hard time getting their hands around the idea that you could have this system where the stock is purchased out of the future profits of the company rather than the employees themselves. Somehow, the only employees have to buy it sometime. And that's been a real barrier to trying to get people conceptually to think about there's a better way to do this. The ESOPs are legislatively more complicated. And so that's another thing that people say, well, you know, we have to, we have to come up with this comp, these complex rules and we don't really have a, a legal structure that easily accommodates this. So it's a lot of political work to get it done. Yeah. I can see how this would do very well for employees of a company that's doing well. But what if the company doesn't do well or even goes out of business? If people lose all of what they've built up? Yeah. So the, it's important to understand that the employees didn't pay for it in the first place, So they, but they do lose what's in their accounts if the company does poorly or goes out of business. And, of course, that's a risk. And there have been employee-owned companies that didn't do very well at all. United Airlines had an ESOP. It was a horribly structured plan, as it turned out. And they went bankrupt, but and so did every other airline, major airline at the same time, except Southwest. So what we need to look at is, is first of all, what does happen to employees? Well, they lose what's in their accounts if the company goes bankrupt. Almost all ESOP companies have secondary retirement accounts, so they still, it doesn't mean they lose all their retirement, although occasionally that's happened. But then we have to ask, well, how often does this happen? And the, we did a study during the last big recession from 2009 to 2013, 
And we looked at the default rate on the loans that were used to buy these companies, a pretty good proxy for companies going out of business. And it was two per thousand per year, two per thousand per year. So it's very rare for this to happen, fortunately. But of course, you know, it, it can happen. So it, it's not something to say, well, you're guaranteed to get this. Entrepreneurship and capitalism involves some risk, no. but it doesn't cost you anything. And what's the risk of not having an ESOP? Well, if you work for a company that doesn't have an ESOP, as, as I said, 50% chance you won't have any retirement at all. And if you do have a retirement plan, it's likely to be a 401k plan. And two-thirds of the money in 401k plans comes from the employee, not the employer. All of the money in an ESOP comes from the employer. Yeah. And they typically have 401k plans as well. Yeah. So that's on the downside. On the upside, what kind of uh, returns or wealth can be built by average workers who are in an ESOP for a long period of time compared to being, say, in a public company where you get, as you say, a 401k, you might have a, a stock purchase plan. You can buy stock in the company. But how would you compare you know, the average worker in an ESOP over time with the average worker in a public company? Sure. So if you're in an ESOP, the typical contribution that the company is making is between 5% and 10% of your pay. That compares to the typical company contribution to a 401k plan of about 4% of pay, but it's pay to play. If you don't contribute anything, you don't get anything. In the ESOP, everybody gets that 5 to 10% simply because they work there. Some companies contribute even considerably more, up to 25% of pay. If we look at the data, we find that the average account balance for an ESOP participant is $132,000. And they typically have a 401k plan with an average account balance in the mid-60s. Now, you compare that to comparable companies, companies who are alike in every other way, but don't have ESOPs and do have some kind of retirement plan, the average account balance is $67,000 in the 401k plan, and two-thirds of that is employee money. Not, and so just a third of it is employer money. All the money in the ESOPs basically is employer money. That average, of course, includes people who've worked there two years and 30 years. If you look at the people who work for a company 20, 30 years, the typical ESOP payouts are in the six figures, somewhere between $200,000 and $600,000 for most people. Some companies even quite a bit more. When you retire from an ESOP company, you're not working there anymore. Can, do you monetize it? I mean, do you get it in cash, or how do you turn it into an annuity? You know, how do you make that money? After you leave, and it depends on whether you leave because of retirement, death, disability, or you leave for some other reason, you're going to get paid the value of your shares. In cash. And it in cash. It may be that it's paid over some period of years, up to five years but it's going to be in cash. You don't get shares in a private company and then go hope you can find somebody to buy them because good luck with that. No, the company has a legal obligation 
to buy them back from you at the appraised fair market value. Can you annuitize it? Can you like buy an annuity? Well, you just you do that yeah, on your own. Treat it just the same way that any other retirement distribution is. So you can most commonly what people would do is they would roll it into an IRA and then there's no tax. So you start taking it out of the IRA. And what happens on inheritance? Say you die while you're still working for the company, you, you get cash so down. Your, your estate would get it. So the estate would get cash for the value of your uh, shares. Right, right. And is that taxable or not taxable when you'd get that? Yeah, it, well, it's taxable like any other retirement uh, distribution would be taxable to an estate. So depend on your you know, other taxes that the estate is due and how much money goes into the estate and so on. So there's no capital gains tax. You're in a company for 30 years, and you've been working there the whole time. You've been getting the ESOP shares. When you cash out and get literally cash at retirement, that comes to you tax-free because it's been building up tax-free the whole time. Is that correct? Yeah. So when I said that the seller can defer capital gains tax, so that's the person who owns the business, can defer capital gains taxes by reinvesting in other companies. The employee their distributions treated the same way that the distribution from, say, a 401k plan would be treated. So they can take the entire, say I get a distribution of $500,000, and the basis for that 500000 is 200000 I can take the entire 500000 roll it into an IRA, and then I pay tax at ordinary income rates, when I take it out of the IRA. So all the interim gains aren't taxed each year. They're your tax when you take it out and your tax is ordinary income when your tax rate may be lower. So it's tax deferred. Alternatively, you could say, no, what I want to do is I'm going to pay income taxes on the $200,000. And if you're pre-retirement age, you'll pay income tax plus a 10% penalty on that 200,000. But I'll take the other 300,000 as net unrealized appreciation and pay capital gains tax on it. I, I don't see very many people do that. Almost everybody, maybe they take some of it because they need it right away and they pay taxes, but most of it they just put into an IRA. Unless they're at retirement age and they want it sooner, then, you know, then they'd just pay ordinary income tax on whatever they need right away and put the rest into a savings account or or into an IRA. Yeah. Oh, but there are a lot of tax advantages to ESOPs. Very good. We're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour uh, is Corey Rosen. He's the founder and senior staff member at the National Center for Employee Ownership. His new book is called Ownership, Reinventing Companies, Capitalism, and Who Owns What? The website for his organization is nceo.org. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? 
Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Corey Rosen. He's the founder of the National Center for Employee Ownership and CEO, author of a new book called Ownership, Reinventing Companies, Capitalism, and Who Owns What? You can find out more at his website, nceo.org. Welcome back to the show, Corey. Thank you. So we've been talking about the solution as ESOPs, but let's go back to the problem a little bit. As far as ownership of equity in, this, in America, uh, the, the first most commonly way uh, equity is owned is through Wall Street, through stocks and so on. But you call that faceless ownership. What's wrong with faceless ownership of stocks? The, you know, the public markets have a lot of advantages, and we are certainly not arguing we should get rid of public markets for company stock. They do provide for liquidity and allow people to invest in them and for retirement funds to invest in and so on. So there's a lot of good things about them, but there are problems, too. The typical public company is owned by institutional investors and, of course, individual investors. And for the most part, almost exclusively, these investors are focused on the short term. And if you're looking at institutional investors, they're often focused on the very short term. In fact, a high percentage of the total trades in the stock market are done by algorithm, where shares are literally held for nanoseconds traded by computers. The notion that you and I, or even these institutions, own these companies is really misguided. A better analogy would be we have the same relationship to the companies we invest in as we do the horse we bet on at the track. Uh We're not investors in the sense that we're here, take our money, go invest it in something, and we'll follow you for the long term. That kind of investment doesn't pretty much exist in Wall Street. So the incentives are all on what have you done for me in the last quarter or the last week for that matter. 
the average CEO has a tenure of five years. So they don't have much incentive for the long term either. So one of the difficulties is this lack of interest in the long term and sustainable growth. Another problem is who owns Wall Street? And like most ownership in the U.S. of productive assets, the vast majority is owned by a very small fraction of 1% of the population. Now, three families own more productive assets in the U.S. than 40% of the population combined. And that's so got, when you so, have this enormous concentration of wealth, it creates lots of economic problems, not the least of which is a feeling amongst almost everybody who isn't in that group that the system really isn't fair. So what are the economic impact of that income inequality? I mean, we years ago we had the the 99% versus the 1% movement on, on Wall Street. This, right. Even in the most recent election, I mean, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are railing against companies and so on, and young people coming out of college don't feel they have a good opportunity. What are the, what are the economic downsides of all that income inequality? So part of the difficulty is something I mentioned before, where the, the focus really, let's think about in wealth insecurity, not just wealth inequality. Wealth insecurity means what happens if I've got a health emergency that insurance doesn't pay for? What happens if I'd really like to send my kids to college without burdening them with all this debt that they're going to have a hard time paying for? and it's going to force them into professions that maybe they don't want to go into just so they can make more money. What happens if I don't have enough money for retirement, which a high percentage of the population doesn't have? That kind of wealth insecurity creates real problems for people. And this wealth insecurity is more severe for people of color, for single women, and so on. What that then does is it really tears at the fabric of society. People start to think when they are that insecure, people get angry, people get frustrated. And the result, I think, in significant part is the kind of political and social mistrust that we have in the country today and that most industrialized countries are experiencing today where people are looking for more and more extreme solutions, whether they're right or left. And the people on the right are as frustrated with this system as people on the left. The answers are different. Let's redistribute income from the left and let's get rid of taxes and regulations on the right. But they're addressing the same concern, that life is just too hard for people. So I mean, the, the it's a really the major issue. I mean, from the left, they would say uh, that socialism is the solution. Have everything be owned by everybody in some kind of socialist ideal. It hasn't worked out too well. I, in I think there's some people on the left who think that. It's certainly, most, I would say, people on the left are more about income and wealth redistribution within the capitalist system. They're sort of hardcore socialists have the government own everything. The, you know, whatever you think of the uh, philosophical virtues of that, practically, it just hasn't worked. Right. So it's it's hard to support it. So there's another uh, concentration of wealth, which you talk about in your book, which is private equity. 
So that's, again, funded by large institutions and wealthy individuals. What is the impact of private equity on ownership in the country? And private equity owns an increasingly large share of productive wealth, estimated now maybe 12 to 15 percent. And private equity are these groups of investors, as you described, and what they typically do is they go and buy typically mid-sized companies, and their goal is to buy them, maximize their profits, and then flip them in three to seven years by selling them to someone else. These days, often another private equity firm, which wants to do exactly the same thing. And sometimes these private equity firms come in with an injection of capital and management and, and really help the companies they buy. But the data overall show that private equity investments lead to a reduction in employment in the companies that they target, whereas employee ownership leads to an increase in employment at those companies. And the wealth from these endless churnings of companies goes exclusively in most of these to this handful of very wealthy investors and then some of the institutions that invest in them. There are some private equity firms now like KKR, which have started a program where they're actually sharing part of that wealth with employees by giving all the employees an ownership stake in the companies they buy. And that's great, and I certainly encourage that, but it's ephemeral. Those companies are sold, that's the goal, are sold in three to seven years, and the employees won't be owners anymore. Do private equity firms ever buy ESOPs? It, it has happened. ESOP companies can be sold. Typically, when they are sold, it's because somebody comes in and offers them twice their value or something in that range. So it's hard to turn that down. You know, these these companies are still companies. They're like any other company and any other owners. And if you get a really good deal, it may be too hard to turn down. It doesn't happen that often, but it does happen. Another recent trend that was super hot that's not anymore are SPACs, special acquisition, right. special acquisition companies, as a way for people to go public, not even with a company yet. They just had an idea, they raised yeah, money, right. and then just, we'll figure out later what we're going to spend it on. It didn't work out too well, but is that another kind of way that capitalism is concentrating wealth, is doing these SPACs? Well, yeah, it's the same thing. The people who are going to afford to take that risk are, by definition, high-income people. A long time ago, Robert Reich, he testified before the Senate Small Business Committee when I was working there, and he testified at what was this wonderful term called paper entrepreneurs. And he was talking about how increasingly in the economy, Wealth is being generated not by somebody who starts a company and actually makes something, but by people who do these elaborate financial manipulations that end up making some people a lot of money and often end up collapsing like <clears throat> collateralized debt instruments did during the last recession. Yeah. It, the, the, the verbiage that most companies put out in their annual reports and so on is are people are our most valuable asset and we care about them so much and we want them to participate by giving them an employee stock plan. 
you're saying it's not really that's not really what they mean. Is that right? It's easy to say that people are your most important assets, but follow the money. If people were your most important assets, you wouldn't be paying your CEO 500 times what your most important assets typically are making. The, where the money goes is the people who we think are the really most important assets are the few sort of superhero CEOs and some of the other top officers of the company. And it's this view that's pervaded a lot of the way we write and think about the economy that it's the CEO hero who really makes the company work or not work. And the data are much more mundane on this. The data say, no, you know, actually, it's all the people who work for the company. Just like you just said, that people are your most important asset. You were actually right the first time. That is your most important asset, and that's what makes a company a great company. And when you look at companies who succeeded over time, and if particularly look at the record of employee ownership companies, their view is that people really should go first. People matter the most. Now, Herb Kelleher at Southwest Airlines, which also has a significant employee ownership plan, used to say, in our company, it's employees first, customers second, shareholders third, not the other way around. Because if we treat our employees well, they'll treat our customers well. If our customers like it, our shareholders will prosper. And that's what happened. That's a very unusual way of thinking about things today, right? It's very unusual, but the data show it's actually what works. Indeed. Very interesting. Okay, we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Corey Rosen. He's the founder and senior staff member at the National Center for Employee Ownership, which goes into all the topics we're talking about here today. His new book is called Ownership, Reinventing Companies, Capitalism, and Who Owns What? You can find out more at his website, nceo.org. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth in Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth in Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Corey Rosen, founder of the National Center for Employee Ownership, 
His new book is called Ownership, Reinventing Companies, Capitalism, and Who Owns What? You can find out more at his website, nceo.org. Welcome back to the show, Corey. Thank you, Jordan. Let's get a, a, a case study or two of a company uh, that's thrived because it's owned by its employees. I think in a lot of ways, the iconic employee ownership companies, a company you've probably never heard of, called SRC Holdings. And they are in the glamorous business of primarily, they have other businesses now, remanufacturing engines for trucks and things like this. And they were bought in the early 1980s. The ESOP was set up almost immediately after some employees at the company actually bought it from International Harvester at the time. And the ESOP owned about a third of the company. Now it owns 100% of the company. And Jack Stack, who was then and still is the CEO, said that, well, you know, the best ideas come from employees. And if the employees are going to be owners, they need to understand our finances. And so I'm going to teach them how to read an income statement and a balance sheet. And we're going to have weekly meetings on the metrics that the employees are going to help develop about what makes their particular operation contributing to the income statement and balance sheet. And so they would divide everybody into these groups of 20 or so employees, depending on what they were working on. And they have these weekly huddles, and they all were talking about the numbers. Now, you might think, this is crazy, teaching people who typically have high school educations how to read income statements and balance sheets and all these metrics. But Jack said, no, they're going to be owners. That's how they're going to help the business grow. They had 119 employees at the time. Today, they have 2,000 employees. Their stock price went from $0.10 a share to $850 or so a share. And if you ask Jack, well, what happened? He'll say, well, we got all these employees involved in this great game of business. He wrote a book by that name, The Great Game of Business. Taught them how to, how to play the game and then gave them lots of opportunities to identify problems, come up with ideas, implement their own solutions, work in teams. And he said the role of the CEO and other leaders is to be humble, to listen to employees because they're the ones with the great ideas. And the example he, he's very fond of using is early on, they were doing pretty well. And he was talking to a janitor. And the janitor said to him, Jack, you know, you keep talking about how we're, we're doing well and focusing on areas of our strength. But I got to tell you, there's going to be a recession coming. And in the recession, these big industrial trucks, people are going to be buying as many of those. But what people buy during a recession is they need to rebuild their car engines, and we should be in that business. And Jack said, huh, uh, goes back to his leadership team. He says, the janitor just said, we should do this. And they said, well, that's a great idea. And so they did it. The recession hit, and they survived quite well because of that. And the lesson he learned from that is there's lots of good ideas out there if you're willing to tap them and treat employees like they, they know this stuff. 
So they're they're really a wonderful example, and they're they're a company that's become quite a leader in this. Uh, there's another really interesting company at the other stage of this now. They're just getting started, called Galaxy Vets. One of my favorite examples is a, a Ukrainian guy who came to the U.S. was a veterinarian, very successful, got very depressed because of the stress that vets have to go through, and you know, there's three to four times the suicide rate amongst veterinarians as the rest of the population. He quit, founded a software company, made a lot of money, sold it. And now he says, I'm going to start a company, Galaxy Vets, and we're going to buy vet practices and make everybody owners through ESOPs when we do it. And we're going to treat these people humanely. And we're going to find ways to create a business for vets where they feel good about their work and it's not so incredibly stressful and we'll make money and we'll do well. And so they've just started this and they've bought some companies and they're finding a lot of vets say, this would be great. I just feel, would feel better about selling my practice if all the people I work with could be owners too. So, so you know, there's all sorts of companies in between. You're saying these things wouldn't happen if employees who are not as invested in the company don't feel they're being listened to, and therefore they don't make these contributions in traditional companies where employees have very little ownership. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So you've got two different kinds of companies outside of the employee ownership companies. You have one where the company just has traditional management. I'm, you know, I know what to do. I'm the boss. I'm Elon Musk. I've got all the good ideas. You guys are a bunch of idiots. Do what I tell you. And by the way, bring in your sleeping bag to sleep over the weekend while you're working. And those companies don't do very well over time. They're, so employees in those companies, they don't even have the opportunity to share ideas and identify problems. Then you have the companies who say, oh, we've read the research and we want to do this and we're going to set up employee teams and all this kind of high engagement stuff that people talk about a lot now. And what the research here indicates that these programs tend to last for a few years. And then one of two things happens or both. One is management changes and the new management comes in and they're not as committed to this as the prior management because it takes real commitment. It's time consuming and it takes a sublimation of managerial ego. And that's not something a lot of managers are very good at. Or the employees start figuring out, you know, we're really helping the company grow. Who benefits? Not us. The shareholders benefit. So why do we keep doing this? So these programs, although they tend to work, tend not to last very long. In employee ownership companies, they just become the fabric of the company. That's that's just how you run the company, because, of course, you should run it that way. What do you think is happening now at Twitter, where it was such a hot company and it was the in thing, and Elon Musk comes in and lays off all these people? You know, What's happening to employee morale at a place like that? I can only imagine what it would be like to work for someone like that. Now, of course, Elon Musk has been quite successful in his other two ventures. And so it's a good example that sometimes 
this kind of management style can work, at least in the short term. But he's got a hard pull at Twitter because he's alienated so many people there and his expectations for people. Who wants to work for a guy like that? Who's going to say, that's somebody I want to charge into the future with. I want to make this guy even richer than he already is. Yes. And I'm going to work 20 hours a day to make that happen. <laughs> now, well, maybe with the job market, people will say, I don't have any choice. But the job market strengthens. Nobody's going to want to work there. As we close the show, why don't we kind of talk about the long-term potential of employee stock ownerships? How big could this get in, in the future? We've tried to model what the reasonable possibilities for this are. And I think that with just some modest steps that the government could take at both the state and federal level, you could see instead of uh, 14 million employee owners through ESOPs, and there are other employee ownership arrangements that add some more, I think you could see 30, 40, 50 million employee owners within the next 20 years. I think that's a stretch goal, but I think it's certainly possible. And it would do an enormous amount of good for both communities and, and for people. And, and I want to add one other really important thing. The owners who sell to these companies, when you ask them, how do you feel about what you did? They say, I feel really good about it. I feel I did something that really helped people. And at this stage in my life, that there's no amount of money replaces that. So it's not only good for the employees, it's good for the economy. It would in, uh, have fewer income in, in inequality uh, problems as well, right? Yeah, it, it really addresses the issue of wealth insecurity. And these companies also pay better and lay people off less. Yeah. So it helps with issues of income inequality and security as well. Very good. Well, we've learned a lot. My guest this hour has been Corey Rosen. He's the founder and senior staff member at the National Center for Employee Ownership, which is a nonprofit organization that's the primary source for information on employee ownership we've been speaking about for the last hour. His new book is called Ownership, Reinventing Companies, Capitalism, and Who Owns What? You can find out more at their website, nceo.org. Thanks so much, Corey. We've really enjoyed this, and I think people have learned a lot about the whole idea of employee ownership. Thank you so much, Jordan. I really appreciate it, and everybody have a wonderful holiday. Very good. Thank you all, and we'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.